0: This
1: week on Monocle Reports, how to win an election.
2: There were various data breaches over the last, you know, five, six years where people would kind of for for a moment wake up to the idea that their personal information was not just being collected for advertising purposes but for more nefarious purposes. Big data and big tech have changed
1: the electoral game. Are the world's elections destined to be putty in the hands of online giants? And one of the biggest concerns come election day used to be uninformed voters. Now, it's misinformed voters.
3: Trump has objectively spread a large number of conspiracy theories that are wrong. And, and you know, it's not partisan to say that they're wrong, but it's, it's really damaging to the
1: information sphere. Are our elections broken? And if so, what can we do to fix them? From Midori House in London, I'm Ben Ryland, and this is Monocle Reports. The former British Prime Minister Harold Wilson famously said that a week is a long time in politics. That was the 1960s. In today's politics, a week can be a lifetime. Just ask Anthony Scaramucci or Michael Flynn. The presidency of Barack Obama may have ended just two years ago, but consider this. When Obama came to power in 2008, Facebook had only been around, for most people, for two years. Today, many blame the platform for helping build the foundations of Donald Trump's takeover of the Republican Party. But regardless of your political viewpoint, it's clear that big data and online platforms have radically altered the nature of politics. Sue Halpin is an author and scholar in residence at Middlebury College in the state of Vermont. An article she wrote for The New Republic explores the role of big data in U.S. politics. Sue, you write about a fascinating example of how the Obama campaign used data from cable TV set-top boxes. Can you explain how that worked?
2: So there was someone on the campaign who actually used to work for a, a cable company. And um, the campaign had this idea that if they could figure out who was watching what and when, they would be able to know much more and in a kind of much more granular way, how to reach those people. And so they were able to make an arrangement with a company that wasn't the cable company, but was a, a kind of ancillary company to the cable company to send them Uh, anonymous data about people's viewing habits, which they were able to work into with their algorithms into a way of reaching those people. So it was very, very specific um, to those people, and to that data set, but it allowed them much more, a, a greater understanding of, of who they were trying to reach and how to reach them. Why do
1: you think that that sort of data would be attractive to a political campaign? Because, of course, on the face of it, it feels like fairly frivolous information. It feels like, you know, why would uh, the presidential campaign care that I like watching Wheel of Fortune and that someone else likes watching cartoons in the morning? Why is that sort of stuff interesting to a campaign?
2: So I think uh, particularly in the United States, Campaigns are interested in knowing everything about everyone. They want to know everything, because the more they know, the more easy it is to figure out ways to appeal to those people. So if you're watching NCIS, let's just say, a show that I actually have to admit I've only seen a few times. but. You know it's a show in which there's a high amount of drama, but there's also a kind of patriotic aspect to it and you know a sense about you know the good guys always win and it's always about law enforcement and i think that just gives them a kind of a read on someone's kind of psychological makeup and you add that to lots and lots and lots of other data and you figure out things about your electorate that you might not know or that you might have to guess about so it just it makes the guessing game of how you're going to approach people it's not necessarily who you're going to approach that's part of it but it's how you approach them with what is called messaging so the the information that you're giving them about who you are and what you're running for and um you know all of the kind of data about you, the candidate, is cherry-picked very specifically for individuals who represent a kind of person.
1: And this wasn't happening in a top-secret bunker somewhere. This was Barack Obama's presidential campaign. It was public knowledge. But suspicions around data weren't what they are today.
2: So, I mean... You say they weren't in a bunker, but in fact, when this was all going on, it was top secret because campaigns in the course of a, an election season don't want to tell the other party, the other, you know, candidates what they're doing. So to that extent, it was secret at the time, but it, you know, became less secret after the fact because people started to talk about and write about it. And yeah, you're right in the early part of the 21st century, the earliest part of it, we were all probably much more enamored of what computers could do and what big data could do. And, and so, you know, this was like, just a a great opportunity that campaigns were able to take advantage of. And now, in the kind of post Cambridge Analytica world, it's a little less less that, but not not as much as you might think.
1: It certainly feels as though Cambridge Analytica has coincided with a massive change in how we view big data and, and technology companies and the internet generally. But suspicions about how our private information is being used and, and captured have been around for much longer, of course.
2: I think that in general, people, uh, in this country at least, were not really paying attention to what was going on in campaigns, certainly you know, there were various data breaches over the last, you know, five, six years, where people would kind of, for for a moment, wake up to the idea that their personal information was not just being collected for advertising purposes, but for more nefarious purposes. And, and each time, you know, there would be this kind of moment of recognition. And then, you know, everyone would go back to using Facebook, or, Twitter or whatever they were using. And so I don't think there was a moment. But what happened when Christopher Wiley came forth from the depths of having talked to the amazing reporter from The Guardian and Observer, Ted Wallader, Wiley had been the kind of architect of the Cambridge Analytica algorithms that were using, basically purloined Facebook data. And when he came out of the shadows and told us that there was something like uh, 87 87, at least 87 million Facebook profiles that had been basically appropriated in a kind of underhanded way, um, and used for these political ads, that, I think, was the moment when people woke up to the connection between what they were doing on Facebook, and what was going on in the political world. And I think it was uh, shocking to people, even though it had been going on for quite a long time. And one of the things that I found out in my research was that the Obama campaign, which you know, which we all were, you know, very happy about their use of of uh, technology, they had themselves um, a long time ago used Facebook data in the same not in the same way, but they had taken Facebook data from the friends of friends. So you might say it's fine for you to have my data, but your friends didn't say it was fine for them to have your data. But it was totally within the rules of Facebook that that was okay. And so the Obama campaign did that in 2012. And no one looked askance at that because because no one looked askance at that. But then when Wiley shows up and tells us that this happened to 87 million people, that was just shocking, the numbers were shocking. And that's I think, what kind of turned the tide against a lot of this stuff in the public imagination, but as I say, not necessarily in in terms of what candidates and their consultants are doing now.
1: When we look at this from uh, from the outside, it, it certainly it has the appearance of some sort of dark and evil plan from some sort of science fiction film or an episode of Black Mirror. But, of course, political campaigns have been using data for much longer than you and I have been walking this planet. Do you think, uh, aside from all of the outrage that we see about it now and suspicions, is really what we're seeing in the game of data collection Simply a natural progression from how it used to work before the days of of the Internet.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about what's happening with campaigns is that basically they follow the lead of what's happening in marketing. So because at this point, campaigning is marketing. It's just that, you know, you don't have to sell lots and lots of blenders or you know, shoes or something like that. You have to sell a candidate and you've got a one-day sale, but you still have to, it's still a sale. So the way to think about what is going to happen, what's, you know, what's in the future really is to start looking at what they're doing in terms of marketing in the commercial zone and um, and understanding that that will soon be adapted to campaigning.
1: Sue Halpern, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to Monocle Reports. US president launching angry tirades at the free press, Russian bots spreading misinformation and inflaming racial tensions. The rise of online media should have been one of the most democratic innovations in human history. But in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which revealed that more than 50 million Facebook profiles had been accessed without permission to build psychological voter profiles, it does seem that the dark side of the internet is still getting darker. Josh Cowles is a researcher in the ethics of data at the Alan Turing Institute. He explains how the rise of online is changing the nature of politics.
2: I think that maybe
1: I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Twitter because I get such a fake press, such a dishonest press. I mean, if you look at, and I'm not including Fox because I think Fox has been fair to me.
0: We've certainly seen a lot of big stories hit the headlines in the last couple of years, particularly since the major elections, influential elections we had in 2016, both here in the UK and in the US and elsewhere. But of course the internet has been with us for much longer. And if you zoom out a bit, it's easier to see that this is a a gradual but um, pretty inevitable revolution, I think, in how politicians try to win votes. Um, The first US presidential candidates had uh, websites back in 1996, so there's been plenty of time for. Folks to get to grips with what's been happening. But I think 2016 was the year in which all this really kind of blew up in ways we didn't expect.
2: Facebook offered to all of its users a blanket opt-in to share their privacy data with any third-party users.
0: Congresswoman,
3: yes, that's how our plum works. You have to opt in to sign into any app before
0: you use it. It certainly has a lot to do with the trove of data we now have about individuals, all of us who use social media. That information as we know is essentially for sale or at any rate um, the time we spend on those platforms is for sale and that has been monetized mostly to sell us barbecues or to sell us bicycles but sometimes also to try and persuade us who to vote for. But if you look back, as I say, to the early stages of of campaigning, the earliest presidential candidates' websites, they looked a lot like what you'd see in the newspaper. So it was just the attempt to replicate the existing technology on the Internet. And even that had its advantages. I mean, it scales. You don't have to spend any money to print every additional piece of paper or pamphlet, which is great. But I think what we see today is really a step change in the ability of candidates to target us, not target the electorate in general, hope that enough people come to their side, but to target us specifically.
1: But when you talk about apology... I think the one that you should really be apologizing for and the thing that you should be apologizing for are the 33,000 emails that you deleted and that you acid washed.
0: Analysis of actually mainstream um, news media in 2016 suggested that there was more focus on specifically Hillary Clinton's emails than on any other single policy issue, which even 10 years ago would have seemed pretty crazy. And that, as I say, was on mainstream media, but I think that reflects uh, wider trends in society driven more by the internet towards the content, which, as you say, is flashy and attention grabbing, and so on. Basically, if you're advertising on uh, on a social network, either you're paying for an ad or you're simply um, putting a message out to supporters. In order for your message to go viral, instead of everything else that happened that some celebrity did that day, you have to compete on the same playing field. And that means competing for really base human emotions, essentially fear, excitement and so on. And I think that's what what's driven the discourse in that direction. I think you need to take every election in isolation. But certainly what we saw in 2016 and what we'll probably see, assuming Trump runs in 2020, is a campaign which is sort of hyper-realistic, hyper-focused on, uh, as I say, kind of attention grabbing messages because Trump will be involved in that. But what you see from his persona in particular is this attempt to craft short, snappy, memorable messages. And of course, a medium like Twitter is well suited to that. Now, by no means is every American voter on Twitter... But by having a high concentration of journalists on Twitter who are potentially willing to amplify that message onto mainstream media, you can see a chain by which actually Trump only needs to tweet to his 50 million followers, which would not have been enough to even win him the election this time around, but onto the, onto the mainstream media agenda more generally. So that ability to capture a particular medium and one which is frequented by other people who spread messages really had an impact in 2016 and could certainly well do in 2020.
1: We had a case where we had an african-american guy who was a fan of mine great fan great guy in fact i want to find out what's going on with him you know what i'm uh, look at my african-american over here look at him are you the greatest do you know what i'm talking about Okay.
0: One way to think about this is if you were living in the UK twenty years ago, maybe ahead of the ninety-seven election when Blair won in a landslide. If you went out to a newsstand, um, yes, you'd see newspapers being against Labour winning that election, and you'd see newspapers being pro that Labour winning. The problem with the current media environment is that you only see what you're quote-unquote supposed to see. So you only see what either your friends think is most important, and obviously our friends are all skewed in certain directions depending on uh, what we believe in, or increasingly what advertisers or political advertisers in particular think you should see. So it's not so much that we're being targeted with particular messaging, although that is important. The point is that we don't see the whole range of different opinions, and therefore we don't necessarily understand the other side as well because we're not so exposed to those kinds of viewpoints. And I think that's one fundamental difference between the old Environment.
1: If you look at CNN and if you look at these other networks, uh, NBC, I made a fortune for NBC with The Apprentice. I had a top show where they were doing horribly, and I had one of the most successful reality shows of all time, I made, and I was on for 14 seasons, and you see what happened when I'm not on. You saw what happened to the show was a disaster. I was on, I was very good to NBC, and I, they are despicable, they're despicable in their coverage. Josh Cowles from the Alan Turing Institute. This is Monocle Reports. This week, we're looking at the changing nature of elections. In the wake of the 2016 vote in the United States, ideas of what constitutes a rigged election began to shift. To some, rigging might suggest surreptitiously gaining access to election results and physically changing them. But what if hacking an election wasn't even necessary? What if you could sway a vote simply by toying with the definitions of fact and fiction? Brian Klass is a columnist for The Washington Post and co-author of the book How to Rig an Election. Brian, how do you define a rigged election? We talk about rigging as something
3: that's an illegitimate manipulation of the democratic process, which is deliberately subjective precisely because rigging... Uh, often comes in innovative ways. So anytime you define it in a certain way, people come up with a new way to manipulate the process and then they say, oh, it wasn't rigged, and actually it was. So it's a little bit subjective, but I think what's changed in the digital world is that it used to be the case that you had to be in the country to rig an election. You had to actually physically be at the polling location stuffing ballot box or intimidating voters. What's now changed in 2018 is that it's much easier to make remote manipulations, to either hack into campaigns or to use trolls and bot farms to try to manipulate public opinion or to try to hack into voting systems to directly change votes on on, uh, voting machines or to try to manipulate the voter roll itself because a lot of uh, election databases are digitized. And, you know, you might be surprised to note that in Africa, for example, a lot of elections have become digitized to the point of having biometric scanners, fingerprint scanners. And that, again, you know, is potentially a source of solutions to election rigging. It makes it harder for dead people to vote, for example, because you don't have their fingers, hopefully. But uh, at the same time, you, you know... It also gives the state a lever of control because they can actually manipulate how that software functions and whether it ends up disqualifying a large number of people in opposition areas, for example.
1: In the, 20, well, in the aftermath of the 2016 election in the United States, there were a lot of people who pointed to the potential steps that, that Russia might have taken in order to meddle in that election. And then we saw that word meddling pop up as something that is quite distinct from rigging or hacking the election. Where do those lines start and stop? Is it still rigging an election to simply meddle with the ideas of what people might know is true or not true about their democratic process before the actual vote takes place? I have to say
3: I'm smiling because I I hate this word meddling. I think I think it totally downplays the seriousness. I think meddling is one of these things that you ascribe to, or you think of like Scooby-Doo. That you know, the, at the end of the Scooby-Doo episodes, the the man in the mask says, "I would have gotten away for it if it weren't for you meddling kids." You know, the cartoon. And I'm, so the words I use are information warfare, which I think is much more apt. It's much more in keeping with what has been a long-standing Soviet practice and now Russian practice, which is effectively understanding that, as a power that has less financial resources and less military might than its adversaries, they need to use information flows to try to divide democracies against themselves and inflict damage that they would not otherwise inflict. And so, this type of information warfare exploits the fact that democracy at its core is about information flows to citizens because If you think about what democracy actually is, one definition is it's informed consent of the governed. In other words, people need to know what's going on, and then they need to be able to say, we approve of it or we disapprove of it. And if you can change the information flows, then people might not know what's going on. And that's why, you know, the 21st century challenge for democracy is not uninformed voters like it may have been in, say, the 1950s to 1990s. It's misinformed voters. It's people who think they know what's going on, people who think that they're really in the know about the sort of secret ways that the Political system functions, and in fact, it's a lot of that is based on lies or conspiracy theories or disinformation spread by foreign adversaries. So this attempt to, uh, you know, weaponize information in a way that creates these self-inflicted wounds in in democratic systems, is a challenge for the 21st century that doesn't have a straightforward answer. Precisely because democracy requires that information flows be open, and that is what foreign governments are taking advantage of. And, and Russia was the main one in 2016. It will not be the only one going forward. There'll be a lot of people who look at that blueprint and copy it elsewhere in the Western world.
1: This idea of allowing people or even encouraging people to be willfully misinformed, you might put a lot of the blame for that on the doorstep of Donald Trump. If it were here in Britain, it might be Boris Johnson or Nigel Farage uh, when we talk about the Brexit vote. But this this uh, style of information warfare has been going on for, for quite a long time, before these people had quite the political clout they have had recently. Where do you put the blame for this? Is it all just because of the rise of of online media and this fracturing of what used to be I I suppose fairly slim list of places where people would get their information from the newspapers the evening news etc
3: yeah so I think you know we have to be really clear about differences in propaganda and disinformation in a way because There are certainly things that politicians have been doing for a long time that put spin or is misleading about information, but it's not outright fabricated. It's not outright wrong, right? So, I mean, one of the main stories in the 2016 campaign in terms of the number of shares was Pope endorses Donald Trump, which never happened. I mean, this is one of the main stories in that campaign. So to me, there's there's a fundamental difference between spin and outright disinformation that is aimed at misinforming people with a, a, just a, a blatant lie. So that's one thing. I think the other thing that we have to keep in mind is that people are self-selecting into information echo chambers, and social media makes this much easier. There's a much wider menu of information opportunities that people can choose from. And the problem is, you know, in the past, you sort of had this sense of shared reality because most citizens in a democracy received their news from a smaller or narrower section of press outlets. Now, on the one hand, that was bad because it meant that there was less democracy in the press. In other words, there were fewer information outlets that people could choose from. On the other hand, it meant that people could sort of agree on what was happening. And the problem with this splintering of the information uh, flows uh, that, that society has to grapple with is that also when people self-select into those echo chambers... The reality that we live in is splintered, where people look at the same events and are finding radically different conclusions, not about what to do about it, but what actually happened. And so that is the big problem is, is we have to sort of draw lines between overt and, uh, you know, sort of less nefarious, but still problematic efforts of propaganda. I also think one thing that's really important is, you know, in the past, these attempts to sort of damage campaigns with interventions, they were much more visible in a way. So the Watergate break in which Richard Nixon, you know, orchestrated and then tried to cover up. People actually broke into a building. So when they were caught, it was like, okay, there's burglars, there's henchmen, we have this sort of narrative of what we understand as being nefarious behavior. When it's, you know, the Russian GRU that's doing it and they're doing it in cyberspace, it's harder to have the smoking gun. We don't have sort of the clear evidence In the same way of the the henchmen breaking in, it's sort of digital fingerprints that a lot of people don't understand. And that unfortunately makes it seem less serious to a lot of people when, in fact, the scope of the uh, hacking was much greater than Watergate. The information flows that were affected by it were much broader. Uh, And so I think we need to also change our mentality that this is the same or worse than actual physical theft or break-ins. And we need to understand that just because it happens in cyberspace doesn't make it any less uh, consequential.
1: Where does the bigger danger lie? Are we more at risk from simply not agreeing on what's true and what's false, or is there still quite a dark plan to hack into an election and physically change the metrics of what is taking place in democracy
3: well I think the two are linked I think that the you know the information flows are a meta problem in other words they're a problem that affects every other problem in politics so I think you know at its core if we if we can't agree on a shared reality the entire democratic system is eventually going to break down and that's a really big problem it's not one that's sort of you know 20 30 40 years away it's on our doorstep and it's something that's increasingly becoming clear in the divides that exist in American politics that are not based on differences in, in tax, tax bills, but based on differences of realities, you know, competing realities of what actually is happening. But beyond that, I think that there are some vulnerabilities that would be easy to fix, right? So one example of this, thats I mean, it's just mind boggling that this hasn't been fixed after the 2016 information warfare and hacking efforts by the Russian government. But there's 15 states that still use what are called DRE voting machines, direct recording voting machines. And that means that when you cast your ballot, there is no paper trail whatsoever. It's just on a single computer chip in the voting machine. Researchers have shown that it's so easy to hack into these that they were able to, in a matter of minutes change it so every time somebody cast a vote it played the university of michigan fight song which was from where the where the researchers were from a child hacked into one of these voting machines last year at a hackathon in six minutes i believe and the headline was you know the child says i'm not even a very good hacker like these are seriously vulnerable machines and they're still being used as part of the democratic process and it's the thing is you know people say well why are we using these and the only answer really is speed you can count the votes a little bit faster. But to get the answer wrong, simply so, you know, Wolf Blitzer can be on CNN proclaiming election results two hours earlier than he would if they had paper. It's just I mean, it's, a, it's the most idiotic, self-inflicted vulnerability that you could imagine. And it's the solution is 2,500
1: years old and it's called paper. Brian Klaus, Thank you. Before we go, a look at what the numbers can tell us about where we are this week. As the results of the midterm elections in the United States trickle in, you might be wondering how, in 2018, the true feelings of voters can only become clear after election day. Well, as we've learned, there are many ways of gauging the political sentiment of an electorate in 2018, including what we watch on television. In the lead-up to the 2016 election, the advertising firm The Rubicon Project asked people about their most trusted source of information about political campaigns on television. Most people cited the news, that is, the evening news, not cable news, 32% overall. Among Republicans, it was 29%, compared to 35% of Democrats and 31% of Independents. But the real divide starts to become clear when we compare trust in cable news between parties. 29% of Republicans say they trusted cable news compared to just 13% of Democrats. That's a massive 22% drop from the number of Democrats who said they trust the evening news. There is some cross-party agreement on the small screen, but not much. And probably not where you might expect. According to a study conducted in 2016 by the consumer research firm ePoll, the most popular fictional program watched by both Democrats and Republicans was Supernatural, a long-running dark fantasy series about brothers who battle demons. It ranked first among Republicans and third for Democrats. The Big Bang Theory and The Walking Dead also ranked highly, but the similarities largely end there. If, as many have said, modern politics is becoming more and more about identity and how we see ourselves, it seems that divide is reflected just as strongly by what we watch as it is by how we vote. For more news and analysis, tune in to Monocle24's live daily programming or catch up via your preferred podcast platform. This program was edited by Kenya Scarlett. I'm Ben Ryland. That's Monocle Reports. Goodbye.